Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, we'll talk tax and its impact on the lives of taxpayers and tax professionals. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So one of the things that a lot of businesses struggle with is balancing cost with deductibility. It's really easy to say, oh, it's deductible. And for purposes of running a business, a lot of things are, so long as they're ordinary and necessary for your business. But it's quite another to spend the cash in the first place. And that's especially true when it comes to intangibles like intellectual property. Intellectual property sounds fancy, but it's really a catch-all name for things that you dream up that you might later use in your business. That means not only your creations like your inventions, your writings, art, and music, but also the descriptors that brand your business. That can be a name like Tax Girl, but also the symbols, names, and images used in commerce like the Tax Girl logo. Intellectual property often has worth, which is why we like it. Branding your business can be valuable, but getting there and then protecting that brand can be expensive. That's especially true when it comes to creating your intellectual property. Costs incurred in creating a trademark, copyright, or patent may need to be capitalized, meaning they'll be added up later to form the asset's basis. When you dispose of the trademark, like selling a copyright, you'll typically have a gain because that property has value. But then again, getting there can cost you money. And business owners may be reluctant to spend money to protect a brand when there are other expenses that need to be paid, like payroll and keeping the lights on. Figuring that out can be difficult, and it definitely requires a professional. So that brings us to today's guest, Kelly Keller. Besides having an awesome name, Kelly is the founder and president of the Keller Law Firm. Her practice focuses on a broad range of domestic and international intellectual property issues, with an emphasis on trademark and copyright matters, licensing and enforcement of intellectual property rights, and providing counsel and advice on brand expansion and management, domain name disputes, copyright protection, and new media law. She counsels clients on use and registration of trademarks in the United States and abroad, including best practices for the selection, adoption, maintenance, and enforcement of trademarks, service marks, and other forms of trade identity, like trade dress, product design, product configuration, and right of publicity. I'll be sure to post Kelly's information in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Kelly, for having me. Thank you. Kelly, you and I have had this conversation a lot and um, about, you know, protecting your brand and figuring out how to balance the cost versus the necessity. And so when I saw the headlines about Lady Annabellum and Lady A, I knew that I wanted to have this conversation in a really public way. So that's why, of course, I have you on the podcast. So to get us started, can you give us a little background on who Lady Antebellum and Lady A are and why they're both in the news? Absolutely. So Lady Antebellum, or I should say the musical group formerly known as (laughs) Lady Antebellum, is a very popular country music trio. And recently, in light of the um, current social climate, they made a decision to change their formal name from Lady Antebellum to Lady A, which is something that they have been using for more than a decade. Their fans call them Lady A. They refer themselves sort of as a short form of their full name, Lady Antebellum. So when they made that decision, turns out that there is actually 
a woman who performs primarily in the uh, Pacific Northwest named Anita White, who calls herself Lady A and performs under that name. So all of a sudden, you have this very public announcement from Lady Antebellum that they will now be known as Lady A. And then Miss White out in the Pacific Northwest, sort of this comes across her radar and it became a conflict of, wait, who is Lady A? So that's how we got here. Gotcha. Would it have made a difference if Lady A, Miss White, if she had been in a different occupation, like if she were Lady A as a ventriloquist, would that have made a difference in kind of the legal approach in the way that, and I know you're going to tell us kind of about where we are legally, but would that have made a difference just from the start? Absolutely. Let me just give a quick snapshot of when two trademarks can coexist versus when there's, you know, a type of infringement or where it would be a conflict for them to both coexist. So the bottom line is this, when we think about trademarks, we think about the descriptors for our products or services, we want to be unique. It's what makes us distinct. It makes us, it's what makes us stand out. And obviously we don't want anybody using our name to sell competitive products or services. And similarly, we don't want to use somebody else's name because people could get confused. Sure. And that's the litmus test. We always have to say this. If you see two trademarks that are very similar, like in this case, Lady A and Lady A, is a customer likely to be confused as to whether those two are related or totally independent? So we think of it this way. If the customer's looking at Lady A, a country band, and then they look at Lady A, a ventriloquist, it's not even remotely reasonable that they would think that the musical band is also offering ventriloquist performances, if I put that <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Once you get into a totally different field and you're, it's different service, it's a different audience, then the fact that the trademarks are the same stops to mean anything. It's not important anymore. Okay. But here it's different, obviously. It was a different scenario because they're both in the same general field, even though they don't do the same music or same kind of music. Absolutely. That sort of became the heart of the issue is, oh, wait a minute, I'm a singer and you're a band. So we're all singers and we are, you know, performing live and we're streaming our music and we're selling it commercially. So we think there is a problem. That's right. why this is making the news. Gotcha. And so Lady, as I understand it, Lady Antebellum sought or had a trademark in Lady A, correct? That is correct. Okay. So let me just give you a little bit of background, if that's okay, on yes. how we got here. Okay. So Lady Antebellum, the band, formed in or around like 2006, 2007. And they had their big breakout in about 2010. That's when they had their first, there was a mega hit called Need You Now, and it sort of like put them on the map. Gotcha. So back in those early days, they started to, they were Lady Antebellum. They, the story goes that they're all from the South and they were at this fabulous mansion, you know, performing. And it just sort of felt like, I mean, when they were like writing all of their music and they were in the creativity space and it just felt like a very evocative name for them, given that they were from the South and these beautiful homes from the antebellum period, which just means before the civil war. Right. They start, they become very, very popular about 10 years ago. 
And at the same time, they would call themselves Lady Antebellum. Fans started to call them Lady A. And they adopted that as well. So they would be like, hey, it's the Lady A merch store. It's the, you know, the Lady A is going on tour. So it became something that was used in a colloquial fashion Mm -hmm. from the early time of them starting out as a band. They decided back in 2010 that they wanted to own legal rights in the term Lady A as well as Lady Antebellum. So they actually filed a trademark application 10 years ago for Lady A, which would cover what we call entertainment services. So it's essentially, you know, live musical performances, et cetera. So it was not just the name of the band, but it was also how the public recognized them. So it's sort of like, you know, my full legal name is like Kelly Elizabeth Clemens Keller, but the public recognizes me just as Kelly Keller. So they actually have federally registered right in the name Lady A and have had them for 10 years and those rights vested and became effective as of 2008. So they have had that federal rights, which means that they have rights in the entire country to use Lady A since 2008. So this isn't a new thing. Right. So the thing that I've heard, and and so maybe you can kind of shine some, some light on this. The thing that I've heard as a layperson is that the argument that their trademark isn't, I'm going to use the word valid, and that might not be the right word, but but I think you know what I mean, (laughs) is that they haven't used it in commerce, right? So that they've, they had the trademark registered, but they didn't use it. Their fans did. Does that make a difference? Like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know how that works, but I know that use is important. Use is king. It's like cash is king and trademarks use is king. Okay. So you're right. That's the argument they're trying to make. But what they're saying is actually we have been using it in commerce because we have been advertising ourselves online, on our website and you know on social media using the term Lady A for as long as we've been using Lady Antebellum. So for example, if they're saying it's the Lady A merchandise store, or you could see a lot of times Lady A wins Country Music Award, et cetera. So essentially what they're trying to do is say, yes, we actually use Lady Annabellum and Lady A interchangeably. It may not be as prominent as Lady Annabellum, but they are claiming that they are using it even though that is almost the short form, kind of like FedEx for Federal Express. Their argument is that, yes, the fans use it, but because the fans use it, we've decided to make sure that we have publicly promoted ourselves under both names interchangeably. That's what Lady Antebellum is claiming, even though others are saying that's not really true but they're making a legal argument that it is. So you're 100% correct that that's really the heart of the issue is, are they using it in the way that they have registered it? And of course, now they're fighting about it in court. What could either party have done to make this easier or to not have ended up in court? Okay, here's the deal. Lady A, Anita White, out west. 
apparently started using this name many, many, many years ago. When she started putting out records and holding herself out to the public, it would have been very, very helpful for her to have gotten some legal advice on how she could protect her name formally under the law. That's step one. Okay. Two would be for Lady Antebellum. If they had known about Anita White back in 2010, they could have reached out to her to see if there was any issue or any concern about whether or not they could move forward using the term Lady A instead of Lady Antebellum. But here's the thing. Hindsight's 2020. And we have to remember that Anita out West, based on the information, at least that we can see in the complaint that's been filed in court, she had a very, very local, very small performance business and didn't really have much of a following. In fact, I think she only has about 166 followers or so on, on Spotify. So it's not, she's just not been had a huge splash. So it's not unreasonable, I think, that Lady Annabella wouldn't really even know about her because it would have been really hard. But had there been a more comprehensive effort by Anita to protect her name and Lady Annabella to do a really, really deep dive into seeing, sort of doing a lot of research to see if there's anybody out there that has the similar name, we probably would have cut this off at the pass a long time ago. But again, that's 2020 hindsight, and sure. that's assuming both parties understood the importance of sort of protecting names and making sure nobody else is using something you want to use. Right. And and so this is kind of, this is why I want you here, because how do you know when that is? And you, you and I have talked about this. I mean, you know, this is something that I've struggled with. Um, I trademarked Tax Girl years ago, and you know that I've been frustrated with both how expensive it can be and how adversarial it can be actually to continue to protect your brand. And you know, I'm a middle child. I don't like conflict. <laughs> and I know that's sometimes where it takes us. So I think that there are some people who will do a quick search, like on the, the trademark, the USTPO uh, website, and do a, a quick search and, and decide that that's all they need to do. And that's cheap and easy, right? So so how do you know when to protect and how far do you go? And, and I ask this kind of more on the Lady A side, clearly, than the uh, Lady Antebellum side, because I'm a small business owner, and I think a lot of small businesses, they want to know the same thing. Like, how far do they need to go? It's a really important question, and the answer is always, it depends on the circumstances. So I'm going to kind of answer this in two parts. And the first one is we've talked a lot about this, about cost. And big picture for every small business owner, when you make a decision to pursue legal protection or formal protection for anything, you always want to ask yourself three things. The first is, is this piece of property? So is it your descriptor? Is it your music? Is it your lyrics? Whatever that is, is it part of my competitive advantage, meaning is it part of what makes me unique and different from other people doing similar things? So the question one, does it help people know who I am and distinguish me from other people? The second question is, is that piece of property, is that something that helps me make money? If it's the way people know me, it's like tax girl is a very important part of your professional identity because 
people find you, they know you as tax girl, they may or may not know your actual name, but it's an important part of how people find you and how they learn from you. Right. So that's the second piece is, does it have commercial value or is it just personal, like sentimental value? Like we all have nicknames, right? Right. (laughs) Like things that you're, they have no commercial value. They just have sentimental value. Gotcha. Then the third question is, is the cost of protecting it higher than the return on investment that you're going to get from protecting it? So it's essentially does the transaction cost exceed the ROI? So if you're going to pay $5,000 to protect something, is that $5,000 going to help you save $5,000 plus somewhere else from fighting in a lawsuit? Is it going to help you become more known so you increase your sales significantly higher than 5000 So I think at the end of the day, we just want to say, hey, listen, is this part of what makes us special and different? And can we actually quantify whether or not it's going to help us make money, even if it's indirect? It just helps us become more known, which gives us a bigger market, which helps us make more money. So you want to do that really factual analysis to get down and dirty about it. That's one piece that's really important. And I think at the end of the day, you don't even have to understand the legal piece. You just want to be like, I always say to my clients, if somebody stole this or they started doing like performing a similar service or being a competitor and they were using this name or they were using that design or that music, would it hurt your business? And would it totally annoy you? Like you just (laughs) do this gut check, like that's a problem and I don't want them to do it. So I'm willing to create some boundaries around that. That's really the heart of that one piece. The second piece of this is just understanding how trademarks work in the United States. Unfortunately, they're complicated, but fortunately, it's easier and easier to get information in part because of podcasts like these and access to information on the internet is much broader, you know, than it, than it used to be. So Mm -hmm. not everybody has to hire a super expensive lawyer to learn, but let me give a super quick primer on how this works in the U S. Okay. Trademark rights arise from use and commerce in English. What does that mean? When you start holding yourself out to the public. So when you start publishing a blog at tax girl, when you start a podcast at tax girl, You are actually creating an association between your listeners or your readers and that name. So there's a consumer recognition of that name. And as you are putting out more and more content or even selling merchandise or subscriptions, whatever it is that you're doing, that consumer recognition and that reputation and the trust that they are putting into you that's actually the trademark. That's the goodwill. You are actually getting legal protection in that just by virtue of using it. But here's the rub. That legal protection is limited to whatever geographic area that you're offering those products or services in. So let's take this and tie it to the Lady A case. For Anita White, if she is performing in Seattle, Washington, and only in, you know, one or two towns, and maybe she's also performing in, you know, Louisiana or Tennessee, and she's actually performing and she's, you know, gaining a reputation. She actually has 
enforceable rights, but they're only in those areas where she is actually offering or, you know, putting herself out there to the public. So she has enforceable rights, but they're just in one geographic area without having to file anything or know anything else. So what happens next, and this is what people have to understand, is that they're getting trademark rights just by being, you know, in the marketplace. Just by saying, hey, listen, you know, I've had a lemonade stand. And so if it's tax girl lemonade and you have a lemonade stand in Philadelphia, then you have, you know, people know you as a lemonade sales lady in Philadelphia, but you can't stop somebody in California from being tax girl, the lemonade lady out West because you're not using it there. Right. When you file an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, what happens is those limited geographic rights to so the little pocket in Washington, Louisiana, and you know Tennessee, Philadelphia, whatever, all of a sudden that gets expanded nationwide. So even if you're not using it in every state, by virtue of the trademark filing, you get the whole country. So that's the piece that business owners need to understand. When you start to use a name, you might be okay in your own geographic area because you don't know anybody else who's competing with you. But if somebody else has filed something at the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, they will still have rights in your area even though they're not there. So you have to balance two things. One is, is there anybody that has something on file at the Trademark Office? That's the one piece. But the second is, hey, what if somebody didn't file, but like for you, let's say that you're in Philadelphia and, you know, so you're in Eastern Pennsylvania and let's say you're going into New Jersey for lemonade sales, but you don't file anything with the trademark office. And then I start to use tax girl for lemonade and I'm in California and Nevada. And then you decide to file an application to say, Hey, listen, I want the whole country. You can't stop me because I already have rights from my use. So what happens is you have to research people who've not just filed at the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, but people who might be using it somewhere because they have their rights just like you do. They're just not in conflict because they're in different geographic areas. Right. So you have to understand that you got to search real life, what's really happening online and at the trademark office. Just the trademark office isn't enough. When I think this is what's confusing for some folks, and it's one of the things that confuses me. So the internet has completely changed the world, right? When you talk about where you're known, you mentioned earlier that Ms. White had a Spotify account where she promotes her music. Is the fact that she's on Spotify enough to make the argument that she had a reach beyond her geographic area or if she had been on the internet? Because this is something I know that uh, brands struggle with. Like if I market, if I am in the Philadelphia area, but I'm marketing, you know, my lemonade or my hot sauce or whatever on the internet, does that necessarily mean that I have a broader reach? It's an important question and a complicated question, but here's the simplest answer. You have a broader reach in that you are able to market what you're offering to a wider range of people more efficiently. But the question is, are they actually buying from you or are they just learning about you? Gotcha. So if somebody's buying, and when I say buying, I mean, 
it doesn't have to be for sale. I mean, they don't have to actually give you money, but let's say they're just, you know, consuming from you. So let's say that if you are selling lemonade or hot sauce in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, but you do not ship it to California, you're not using it in California. So unless you, even though you are promoting it online, at the end of the day, the question is, where do you have to live in order to get what you offer? And that's really going to be the question. So, and it really is a little bit of a different analysis if you sell product like a lemonade or a hot sauce versus offer a service like mm-hmm. a podcast or, you know, musical performances. Right. So it's, the analysis is a little different, but just because you market something online does not mean that all of a sudden you actually own everything everywhere where there is potential reach for you. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Well, and that's, and again, I think that's one of the things that's frustrating, right? For some business owners, because for example, in the tax world, uh, the IRS will distinguish between a hobby and a business. Right. So if you have a hobby, if the IRS believes that you have a hobby, you can deduct your hobby expenses, but only up to the point that you're making income from them. So if you're blogging on the side, for example, or podcasting on the side, or you have this great idea for a website on the side, and it's not a full-blown business, it's something that you're dabbling in, and we're going to assume that the, all the tax criteria says that it's really a hobby, and you make 100 bucks for the year, you can only write off $100 in expenses. So you know, when you start thinking about it, you think to yourself, well, maybe it's not worth it for me to engage a professional or try to protect this name because first of all, I do have a little bit of fair use or not fair use, but use of the name if you're using it. But from a dollar's perspective, it may not make sense to protect it. And I think that's what trips up a lot of business owners because everybody has this great idea, right? You know, you're, you're always sitting right. in, in the shower or whatever, and you're like, aha, like, this is my moment. This is the thing I'm going to do, but it's expensive to protect it. So maybe you don't. And then I think the fear is that somebody steals it, right? Because that's what people are always seem to be worried about. What if someone steals it? I think it's confusing going back to Lady A, you know, it's easy to to talk about what they could have done differently or, or that Miss White could have done differently. But of course you want to protect a multi-million dollar business, right? <laughs> but but where's the line for the rest of us? Like, where do you, I mean, if you're advising a business owner, like, is there a moment, like, I, and I, I know you kind of referred to this earlier, but like, is there a moment at which you're like, aha, I need to federally protect this. This isn't just Kelly's Lemonade Stand anymore. It's going to be a bigger deal. But it's not there yet. Like where, because again, we are, I've seen a lot of criticisms on both sides for Lady Anne Bellman and Lady A. Miss White, where people have said, here's what they should have done differently. They should have known five years ago. They should have known 10 years ago. When she first started singing, she should have run out and trademarked the name. Looking back, it's so easy to say what they should have done. But like prospectively, if you're advising clients, do you tell them, you know, okay, this is going to cost a lot of money. You're not going to be able to deduct it, but... Or we're going to force you to capitalize it. So it's not going to be immediately deductible. But where does it, when does it make sense? And I know that's kind of asking you to look into a crystal ball, but, but how do, how do business owners at least know when to start? Like, when should it feel real enough 
for you to start doing those things that you said they need to do? It's a really good question. And this is how I handle it in my practice and how I think uh, recommend others to do. At the end of the day, it comes down to risk. And in order to understand your risk tolerance, you have to understand what the risk is. The most important thing that a business owner or a hobbyist or somebody who's thinking about something is to understand and whether that's hiring and talking to a lawyer for one hour, whether it is going online and reading an important blog or listening to podcasts, but is to at least understand what am I giving up by not protecting it? And what am I gaining by protecting it? And then you simply make a decision at what point do we flip from risk to reward? That is going to be different for every single solitary person. So for some people, if you're the hobbyist, you may want to say, listen, I'm willing to put money into this because I want to buy my time. I want to buy time to create and decide whether or not this is actually going to be worth it. And I don't want anybody to be able to compete with me in that process. So you decide I'm going to spend the money just to buy some time. It's like renting extra office space or, you know, so that you don't get anybody else to come in and move in next to you. And you don't want anybody to bother you. So you over rent or you rent an entire floor in a building instead of just one office because you don't want anybody else to move in. So you're more just buying your own exclusivity. One. The second piece is to say, I'm not willing to spend any money, but I'm going to accept the fact that somebody might compete with me and I'm going to be okay with that because at the end of the day, I'm going to be willing to pay the piper to either try to negotiate something with them or realize I might have to change my name or just do the best I can to build what I have right now and not worry about the fact that other people are out there. You just have to make the decision of, is it worth it to me or is it not? And I think having a conversation with somebody who understands, like even just this podcast to say, listen, if you don't file an application, somebody else could do the same exact thing somewhere else in the country and you can't stop them. And if you're okay with that, awesome. Right. Great. No problem. So you're not forced to do it, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's like you say, you know, paying taxes is painful, but talking <laughs> about them shouldn't have to be. Paying for trademark protection is painful, but not understanding what you have to lose could be more painful. Sure. So it's just, you have to seek out opportunities to become informed and then just make a good decision. It's like deciding you moved into a new neighborhood, you bought a house, so you changed all the locks so the old owner couldn't come in. But now are you going to add an alarm system? Are you happy with the manual locks? That's a great You have to decide. Yeah. Yeah. How much protection do I want Like what's the barrier to entry, right? If I don't want people to hop onto my property, trespass and break into my house, maybe I want to build a fence around my yard. Maybe I want to add an alarm system. How hard are you going to make it for people to get so close that they can cause harm? There's a cost to the alarm system and there's a cost to the fence. 
But what you have inside is important enough to you that it pays to protect it. And that's where we come back to that. Is this really part of what makes you distinctive and unique? Right. And if it is, you need to think, does it make sense to protect this based on what my goals are and where I'm going versus what do I have now? It's long-term thinking. It's beginning with the end in mind. And unfortunately, our laws are, are complex, but when you have a basic understanding, they also can create extraordinary opportunity. So I think that that's the ultimate thing is to know enough to be able to make a good decision with the information you have at that time. What was it? Was it Maya Angelou who said, when we know better, we do better? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's sort of the thing. Like as we know more, we can make better decisions. But if you choose to not protect anything or take advantage of the law that is there for you to protect yourself, you're not doing anything wrong but you can't complain when somebody else steps in and decides that they decided to protect or compete with you, even if they didn't know about you. It's just, you got to, you know, there's a consequence to every decision. Right. So when you were talking about doing the ROI and the numbers, for those of us who work with numbers, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, the IRS says that this, this is worth something, your intellectual property is worth something. And on paper, you've made those calculations and you know what that number is, maybe. (laughs) But just speaking as like a business owner from a gut and reputation perspective. And you and I have had this conversation before, but I think this is actually kind of a kind of a good note to end on because this is something I think that Lady Antebellum, the band is struggling with. And as you know, it's something I've struggled with before. Even if you know that the numbers make sense, emotionally and reputationally, it can be really challenging to protect your brand. So if you've made the decision, I'm going to trademark this, and then you find out that someone's infringing, and then you make the decision to, um, because part of the, the law is, and I think a lot of people don't know this, is that you you have to continue to protect your brand or it's not worth what you say it is, right? And I think a lot of people don't understand that you have an obligation once you've made the decision, like on the trademark side, that you have to continue to protect your brand. It's really I think challenging, especially for small business owners, because you don't want to be the person who feels like the bad guy for saying, I know this is your dream too, but it was my dream first. And I understand, you know, you're a lawyer and I'm a lawyer and we analyze things very logically, but from a gut perspective, like how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you say, you know what, I know this is going to make you look like a bad guy, but you have to do it anyway. And again, you know, I'm kind of basing this some on my, my personal experience, but also I've seen a lot of the back and forth that's gone on about Lady Antebellum and Lady A. And, you know, it, it's very easy for the press to make both sides out to be evil people. They're saying Miss White just wants money and they're saying Lady Antebellum doesn't care about her. When you try to protect your brand, there can be negative consequences, again, just from a reputational standpoint. How much do you figure that in? Like, aside from the numbers and the taxes and the deductibility and the business piece, how about the emotional piece? So yes, we're both lawyers, but we're also business owners too, you and I. So we both come, and I think that's one thing that gives us really good perspective is I am my client. I'm a business owner too. And I feel all of those same things when we're talking about my own brand. And if you're attacked in any way, it's devastating. It's personal 
and it's very hurtful. So at the end of the day, this is what I say to people is you have, it's sort of the, you have to decide what game you want to play. It's like, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. You have to decide, are you going to put yourself out there and are you going to risk that people are going to misunderstand you? They're going to say bad things that are uninformed. And are you going to work on improving your skills as a business and brand owner who is willing to work at learning how to not take it personally, but to continually respond by being awesome, being great, and rising above it. Versus if it's too devastating, it's too personal, that you can't do it, then you might need to rethink whether or not you want to operate at that level of business. Obviously, Mm -hmm. Lady Antebellum and Anita White are very, very different in terms of the nature and scope of their businesses. And they have very, very different exposure and very different financial resources. And so I say to my clients, if, you know, can you sleep at night? Right. If this is going to be too painful, it's too, it's not worth it because if it's going to totally ruin your day and you can't, you're going to be paralyzed by all of it, then let it go. Maybe start with a new name or find, like you say, you know, you need professional help to get your taxes done. Sometimes you just need a professional in your corner who can help give you some guideposts to help. This is personal. It we It's easy to say it's just business. It's just business. But that's nothing but sort of a maxim. At the end of the day, I have another client who's being sued for trademark infringement. And she's also a lawyer. And she's like, this guy wants to ruin me. It's so personal because it's like, what is all of this about? So here's what I say on the emotional side is that you need somebody to talk to. You need someone in your corner who can at least explain what's happening rationally. And as a either a hobbyist or as a business owner, learn, really work on how do you make decisions that you can live with not only financially, but emotionally, psychologically, physically. Because at the end of the day, if it, there's too much mental anguish, then it's not worth fighting. It's not worth going after somebody. It's worth finding a new strategy and a different plan. We are kidding ourselves if we think that emotions aren't a part of it. But the law is the law Mm -hmm. and it creates enormous responsibility and imposes obligations on us, but it also creates enormous opportunity. Right. And so I think that where we are in our society, two things have happened. It is so much easier to start a business now, and it is so much easier to market your business with digital tools than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So we have access, but we don't understand the rules of the game yet. Right. So it's a really misaligned situation. So we have to all keep moving forward constantly trying to learn what are the rules of the road. It's like, I'm sure you've driven in a foreign country before on the wrong side of the road. Yes, (laughs) You're like clueless. 
you know, but at the end of the day, right, you have to figure out what are the rules for this road? So you have to keep knowing better so you do better. And you have to be honest with yourself that there is a cost to every decision and is one you're willing to pay or not and be okay with making a decision. I don't want to enforce this. I don't care. And I'll take the consequences of maybe losing some of my distinction or losing some of my uniqueness. It's okay to decide that your mental health (laughs) is worth more than the fight. Right. But just understand that there is a consequence to that decision and it's okay. Just constantly work to become more informed and realize that it takes two to tango. Everybody's operating in this really interesting dynamic world and the law takes forever to catch up. So we are really (laughs) in a difficult time But I just try to say to my clients, but here's the thing. We may have some challenges in become, you know, really standing out in our, you know, in our market. But boy, do we have opportunity like we never did. One of the things you said I was really struck by, it made a lot of sense as you were saying it to me, you know, because I because I've been through this is when you were talking about using another person to help. I often tell people, especially like if they're going through an audit on the tax side, yes, I think you should have representation. And they say, why? And I say, because I don't have skin in the game. So if, if the IRS auditor tells me that they think you're lying, I say, well, let me explain to you why I'm right. I don't have the emotional baggage that you might have as a taxpayer that you're upset that they're questioning your, you know, your truthfulness or something like I can look at the numbers and I can say, this is what I know to be true. And this is what I know is the case. And here's what you need to know. And sometimes I bring in the emotional element because I think that people are people and that adds to the story. And, and sometimes the auditor needs to know that you were going through a divorce at the time or you know that you had just lost your job. Those things are important. But at the end of the day, the auditor's asking certain questions and you don't want the taxpayer to say too much or to bring in their emotional baggage with them to that audit, right? I was thinking as you were talking about having someone, you know, stand up for you in trademark world, intellectual property world, like I know that because I know that I've gone through this uh, protection of my brand before. And your, your gut is that you want to tell everybody, like, I'm really just trying to do the right thing. I believe in my brand. I don't think this is fair. I'm not a terrible person. And, you know, I've had situations where I've had to deal with more than one lawyer. And sometimes you and, and, and other lawyers have had to tell me, like, be the client, like step back and let us handle this because you don't need to be like, you can be emotional behind the scenes, but you don't have to be emotional in your brief or you don't have to be emotional in your answer. Like, let us use the law for you. And um, it's funny because I had kind of forgot about that until you were talking. I think that's so important to remember and understand that having a third party isn't just helpful because they know stuff, but because they know how to present information that's important and, and also germane to, to what's happening as opposed to extra that you just want to offer. Like, I just want to tell you why I'm right, right? So I, I think that it makes so much sense about why you need someone to kind of champion you in a way that is more, maybe, I don't want to say 
without passion, you know, because they say the law is, is reason. Um, I don't want it to be without passion because obviously as small business owners, we're passionate about our work, but I do think you need some, someone sometimes to keep you on track. And it's always one of those struggles where it's like, well, well, why wouldn't you hire a lawyer? It's like, well, half the people don't even know where do they find a, an enrolled agent or where do they find a tax lawyer? Where do they find right. a trademark lawyer? But it doesn't change the fact that it's so important and everything you said is spot on. Here's another way to think about it is you wouldn't travel to a foreign country when you don't speak the language without a translator, whether that translator is a guidebook, whether it's an app, whether it's an actual person. You don't speak the language you cannot communicate effectively because you don't know the vocabulary. When you hire a professional, they understand the language of the law or the language of the tax code. You don't. You need your translator so that you actually can maneuver through and actually enjoy the experience if you're in a foreign country or, or actually get what you're asking for. So you need somebody who understands the vocabulary and the language of the issue that you're dealing with. And we would, we have to think of it that way. I need a translator because we all have our zone of genius. And most business owners, you know, if you're not a lawyer owning your own law firm, the law is not the language that you speak. Right. So you need to be really proud of the fact that you probably speak a language that lawyers don't speak be okay hiring somebody who does because you're at a disadvantage because you don't understand a word that is being said to you. And as you say, stop talking about, you know, all your personal problems. Cause at the end of the day, you know, the law doesn't care. The tax code doesn't care. I can help you as a lawyer. I can put like, let's talk about that and let me help you manage your feelings. But don't dump them all into the actual situation because that's not going to help you get anywhere because the law isn't a person with feelings. Right. The tax code isn't a person. So <laughs> we, we need a translator and it's not a sign of weakness, but I think that it is incumbent upon us as small business owners to realize that we are playing a game and there are rules. Right. There are rules to the game or the game doesn't work. You won't open up a board game. You don't open up anything without understanding how you play, you have a responsibility to at least familiarize yourself with the fact there are rules. And if you don't understand them, to recognize you probably need help understanding them, not to be trite, but it's like, you're not going to do open heart surgery on yourself. So you don't want to get yourself so far out that you can only tread water so long before you finally, you know, can't keep it up. And then you just you drown under the momentum of the problem. Right. I think that's just so, so right about understanding that everything has rules. Tax code has rules. Trademark has rules. It's a lot to take in as a business person. Oh my gosh. Because it's a lot to take in, period. I just think, you know, the other thing that I think is important for small business owners to understand is lawyers, accountants, and other specifically trained professionals who are trained to interpret some type of set of rules, we're very used to having tons of information sort of shoved at us down our throat really fast, having to absorb it. And we have been trained on how to process that and analyze it. Yes. Whereas a business owner who's not 
a lawyer or an accountant has a different skill and they just have to realize it's okay that they can't take all that in and process it because they just don't have the tools. And it's better for the business. I say this to my client a lot. Like you did not, especially like my, my folks that have, you know, whether they have websites or they're designing clothes or whatever they're doing. I always say like, you did not start this business to spend 20 hours looking at your books and working on an 1120, like hire someone to do that for you so that you can do the thing you love. And it's an attitude adjustment for business owners. And I'll say that because I am one myself and I had to do that. I had to swallow my pride and be like, I don't understand this. I need help with it. Know what you know and know what you don't know. Yep. And if you know what you don't know, but decide not to do anything about it, that's okay. Just own your decision. Exactly. It's responsibility to keep up with what's going on. Yeah. And it's, it is something I think small business owners struggle with because, you know, you think of yourself, especially when you when you build something out of nothing, you feel like crazy proud. Like, this is amazing. Look what I did. And you feel like you ought to be able to do everything, but you can't. You just can't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think at the end, once and I, somebody say to me, once, suck it up, buttercup. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I realized that my own, I'm not stupid. I'm not dumb. I'm not deficient. I'm not anything bad because I don't understand the legal stuff or the financial stuff. But I care enough about my hard work, my ideas and what I'm doing. And I'm passionate enough about it to make sure that I protect what I'm offering so I can offer something valuable to people, not a piece of crap that if, if I have a product and somebody else is making it as a knockoff or a fake, then by me not protecting myself, I'm depriving my customers of getting a genuine article. Just think about what do I need to do to keep having a lot of integrity in this business, what I'm doing so that I can keep helping people. And if that's what's going to help me help people, then that's what you need to do. But you have to step outside of it and put on your business cap and not your personal cap. And you have to learn how to make decisions differently. And when you don't have the skills to do them, hire people to make them for you. Agreed. Thank you so much, Kelly, for stopping by. This is such great advice. I think a lot of folks have these kinds of questions. And again, as I mentioned, I'm definitely going to put your uh, contact information on the show notes. I know that your website has some really good resources for folks. And thanks again for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at TaxGirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.